Well, good morning, church. Thank you, worship team, for a really uh, meaningful time of uh, leading us into worship and and setting the tone for today's stage. And uh, thanks for having me back, and thanks for coming back. My name is Brett, and we're on a a two-week journey to generosity. And um, you know, it's been it's so neat to hear how many of you have been challenged by the Holy Spirit in the area of financial stewardship. And and last week's sermon is online and, and a precursor to today. So if you haven't heard it, uh, do pick that up and uh, look forward to helping you on that one. Um, You'll remember last week that we learned from Malachi two different roads. The first road is a comparison leading to discontentment and then to disobedience and selfishness and, and versus God's road of contentment, which leads to obedience and then his blessings of provisions and peace and joy. And we talked about the tithe or 10% of our earnings going as a benchmark, as a starting point of our giving, and that offerings are above and beyond that to other areas of need and, and ministries. And, and please take your sermon notes today, if you would. They're in your bulletin. And uh, grab a pen and, and you're open your Bible, if you would, as well. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians 8, where we're going to go through part of Paul's amazing letter to the church at Corinth. And for the second part of our journey today, we're going to be studying five signposts of a generous giver. And let's pray as we enter into this time together. Father God, thank you so much for your provisions, which you have been meeting our needs with. And and thank you for challenging us to return to you. As we open our hearts and open our minds today, please help us see truths about generosity from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like you to imagine this. Our beloved Apostle Paul, our friend and spiritual leader, is writing to us here at Willow Park Church today. We open this letter for the first time as he talks to us about his experience with another local church family. Let's read 2 Corinthians 8 together. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, And in your love for us, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Remember last week we talked about comparing, and that's not the right comparing we want to do, but this is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
We're not talking financial there. And here's my advice about what is the best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable to what one has, not according to what one does not have. This scripture teaches us so many things about our giving practices, so let's journey on. The first signpost of a generous giver is a cheerful heart. And based on everything I know about God's design for us and and what I know about his heart is this. One of the most important elements in our giving practices is the spirit with which we give our gifts. Verse 2 says this. The church gave with overflowing joy. And in the next chapter 9, verse 7, Paul simply says this. God loves a cheerful giver. And you have all likely heard that, but, but what does that mean? Being a cheerful giver means that we are pleased with the opportunity to give. It means that we look forward to the times and places where we can give. And that when we give, we're truly okay not spending that money on ourselves. The Macedonian church was so cheerful in spirit that they initiated the request for the privilege to give. What a concept. You know, just last week... And and today we're going to practice our joyful celebration of of tithes and offerings. However, all your other times of returning to the Lord and giving to others, I'm going to attempt to convince you with all my effort how important this piece is on our journey of giving. So does that mean God doesn't love the grumpy giver? Or the reluctant giver? Well, he still loves the giver regardless. But he delights in us when we give with that cheerful spirit. Expanding from last week, the key starting point for cheerfulness is to first have that content frame of mind. As a spirit of gratitude is an absolute prerequisite for a cheerful giving mindset. I had to start today's message today, my friends, with with this tremendously important matter of the heart when we give. Because when you practice with a cheerful attitude, it will be one of the most single influential factors in your giving practices. A couple of years ago, our youngest daughter, Natasha, heard about this pay it forward thing. And as you go into a fast food drive through you pay for your meal plus the guy's meal behind you. And then he feels grateful and he pays for the guy behind him. It really messes up the drive through people, but anyway... And as you uh, may know me, I love uh, McDonald's eggnog milkshakes in December. So my daughter, we were going through uh, the drive-thru, and, and uh, she tells me about this pay-it-forward thing. And as we're out, about up to the window, she goes, Hey, Dad, let's be crazy. Let's pay for two cars behind us as well. So I looked at her, and I, I paused, and I said, Okay. And as I watched this young child's soul light up with giddiness... And sheer joy as she imagined the delight of the people behind us and and the people behind them. And and when they heard the good news that their bills were going to be paid, that was priceless. Two milkshakes and $37 later. (laughs) We're driving around the building and 
Tasha exclaims, hey, dad, let's do it again. I said, sure, you pay this time. (laughs) Tasha has so much fun giving away my money. Did I just say my money? Let me rephrase that. Tasha has so much fun giving away God's money that he's lent us. I'm still learning these concepts too. Church, if there will be anything that revolutionizes your giving practices and Christian testimony, it will be moving from a ritualistic, grudging giving to authentic, joyful giving. Growing up, one of my all-time favorite stories was about that short guy named Zacchaeus, likely because of that catchy little song, and you can sing it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, that's good. And as that Savior passed that way, he looks up in the tree and says what? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. And Jesus did even amidst the mockery and the criticism of the Pharisees, because he was a tax collector. And during that meal, Zacchaeus learns the right role for his life and, and the futility of cheating others and hoarding. And he gets to know the heart of Jesus. And then this beautiful explosion of a new life comes, listen in, to the response of Zacchaeus from Luke 19. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, now I, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. And here was Jesus' response. Today, salvation has come to this house. Money was a massive negative issue for Zacchaeus, and, and, and as a tax collector before knowing Christ, but When touched by the Spirit of the Lord, his life was transformed. His new cheerful attitude towards money showed his authentic heart change and transformation because he now knew his Savior personally. Have you allowed your salvation to affect your attitude about money like Zacchaeus? Have you let Christ move you to cheerfully giving to others? Let's move on to the second signpost. A generous giver returns to the Lord his first fruits, not the leftovers. And last week we talked about the tithe and being a 10% starting mark that we give to our locally gathered church, similar to the tithe established for the Levites. But you will see that in the New Testament, this practice of tithing continues. But it's shown here as a priority giving. Let's look at verse 5. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. We also read in Exodus 23, it says, Bring the best of the first fruits of the house of the Lord your God. Contrast that from giving to what's left over. Well, what do you like better? Do you, do you like a, a freshly cooked turkey dinner with all the fixings? Or do you like the, the three-week-old cranberry sauce that comes out of the container with some newly green-formed white and green fuzz on top. Friends, God's the same. His portion needs to be your best and your first. So you don't spend it on other items and get caught with not enough left over. Practically speaking, some people make their check out and they put in their Bible for the weekend and others do automatic debit and whatever. I'll leave the mechanics between you and the Lord. But the key element for this signpost, my friends, is to 
figure out the best way for you to give your first fruits to the Lord, showing him priority of your heart. The third signpost that God desires is an element of sacrificial giving. And this, I think, is one of the most challenging parts of today's message. Consider verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial and extreme poverty, they gave as much as they were able to and even beyond their ability. Wow, what a church. That means they had to go without. Actually forgo something and, and offer it up to another who was more needy. And my friends, I don't think we know how to go without very well. When was the last time you or I actually gave up something that enabled us to give to the Lord or to a needy person or family or ministry? You know, sure, we do some helpful giving, and that's great, but going without, that's hitting a little closer to uncomfortable. I believe we have so far to grow in this area, and, and, but I can assure you that there are never regrets when we give sacrificially. Remember the story about the little boy who gave his five loaves and, and two fish to Jesus after crowds gathered all day to listen to Jesus and preach? Can you imagine a hot, dry day in the middle of 25,000 people, and a little boy gives up all he has that day for his lunch? Would you or I consider voluntarily giving up the few morsels that we had when we may not get any food that day? That boy said, I don't have much, but I'll be glad to give it away to another. What a sacrifice. This week I actually asked myself, would I have given my lunch so that others could have? And I I had to admit, because I kind of like food a lot. That would have been a struggle for me. But I do know one thing. I want to grow up to be that little boy. Having the vision that Jesus can do much more than I could ever imagine with what's in my hands. We're going to see a little clip based out of Luke 21 that helps us peer into the heart of Jesus when it comes to sacrificial giving. Would you watch this, please? say unto you that this poor widow have cast in more than they owe. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God, but she of her penury has cast in all the living that she had. This woman was incredible. She gave very sacrificially, and and in God's economy, gave way more than the others. Now compare this woman to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who asked Jesus, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus, knowing his stumbling block, said this, 
sell all you have and give it to the poor. And this guy walked away sad and lost and empty and completely poor because he could not give up his love for his wealth and his affluent lifestyle. Oh, the turmoil in his soul as he couldn't even give it up to save his own life. We're going to go down this sacrificial road a little bit further. And a question we must all ask ourselves is, how do we define a need versus a want? And when I was pondering this section, I couldn't help but think of the drastic cultural changes and new things that have crept in to what we consider as part of our normal budgets. New budget items that are now creating consumer kryptonite. This new normal often cripples and dizzies our purchasing decisions as they compete for God's resources. And I'd like to compare the budgets of of perhaps your parents or your grandparents from 60 years ago. Compare that to the average budget of ours today. How our culture has transitioned what would have been considered luxuries 60 years ago into what we as Christian families call normal, monthly, regular, required expenses. Now, put on some spiritual boots here, because I may step on some toes accidentally. And it would never be my intention to simply offend, but I do want to shake us up a little bit here and see what God's calling us to. In fact, I came across a quote from Stephen Olford, and he said, I'm convinced that the devil has caused the subject of giving to stir up resistance and resentment amongst God's people, because he knows that there are few ways of spiritual enrichment like the exercise of faithful stewardship. So here we go. I call this the generational mental money shift, and and I created this, and so I'll take all the blame for it. You see here on the left is what the average family of four might include in their month and and yearly budget, and the corresponding costs from 60 years ago in the middle column, and then today, And, and the 60 years ago are in today's dollars, okay, so I've even added inflation. TV, internet, computer, games, iPhone, cell phones iPads, pods, watches, Wii, Xbox, then the next slide. Okay, sorry about this. Manicure, pedicure, hair coloring, specialty coffees, gym passes, golf, vacation, DVD, movie rentals. And what's our total there? $300 60 years ago in today's money to $16,000. Now, this is an estimate, but it's, I think, pretty close. And I didn't even put anything in there for our various hobbies of, of boating and snow skiing and, and scrapbooking and art collecting and how quickly we've moved from three dollars to $16,000 without even knowing it. And, and I share this list with you somewhat reluctantly because we can really get distracted with the legitimacy or the amounts of any of these. However, my goal is to draw our attention to the current competition of our dollars and help us look twice at these items. And they're not really a part of our basic needs at all. But we almost have them as a staple requirement as part of our budget. I'm including myself in this conversation. And so the next time you do budgeting in your family, make sure you have an empty seat for Jesus to join your discussion. And ask Him for the insight you need to help make the decisions to honor Him. And as you grow closer to the heart of God, when you consider spending anything, ask yourself the question, is this a need or is this a want?
it will mess you up. Preached last weekend and Sunday night, my wife and I went on a two-day business trip to Alberta. And at the car rental place at the Calgary airport, I had an option for a Chevy Impala for $58, which is an amazing deal, I think, or an all-wheel drive BMW for $120. It was winter. And then I did a really stupid thing. I went over to my wife and I asked her what she thought I should do. Typically, that's a good thing. And then she said this. Naturally, she was disgusted that I even asked. I went back to the counter and I changed my grumbling to forced thankfulness that we get a nice, plain car that will get us to where we need to go. With the Chevy keys in hand, And walking to the car, my wife then drops this bomb. I can't believe you just preached on this topic this weekend and you still were tempted. (laughs) I'm on a journey with you, friends, the same journey. I did have a sore back after the two days, but that's okay. (laughs) The fourth signpost of a generous giver that God desires is when we practice regular and faithful giving. Let's look in your Bibles again to verse 10. It says this. Last year, you were were the first not only to give, but also have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. What happened to the church of Corinth? They started strong, but then they petered out. They gave what they wanted to, but were they not faithful to the end? Did the novelty wear off? Did they forget that the Lord's blessings come when we're faithful? And earlier in in the previous book, 1 Corinthians 16, it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. You can only do that by planning ahead. Otherwise, we become sporadic, inconsistent givers. When I was a little kid, I remember a time a, a couple was in front of us at church and And they were filling out their check for their offering. And the wife wrote down a number and and looked up at her husband. And and he had his arms crossed and leaned over and kind of pursed his lips and went like this. She crossed it off and put another number and and looked up at him. And and he leaned over and shook his head again. I remember this just like it was yesterday. Her shoulders dropped. She wrote a third number down. Looked up at him. And he nodded. Wow. That was some nonverbal conversation and and relational dynamics that just went on there. They had not prepared properly ahead of time and determined in unity their joint commitment before the Lord. Conversely, I had the neat opportunity of going on a youth missions trip to a poor town in Mexico just last year. And, And on Sunday, we went to this small church where they had a time of of praising God and worshiping. And and during a praise song, the congregation, one by one, went up and and gave their money gifts, put it in a bucket at the front. And I remember this simple and, and certainly not wealthy mom walking down the aisle, and then I saw in front of her, her two or three year old son with the family offering in hand, like this. His thumbs were on top. 
Both were beaming with a bright smile as they brought their portion to Jesus. And this struck me deep. The participation and faithfulness level of this entire body of Christ was remarkable. And it seemed that everyone participated in this time of stewardship. And it took an entire long song for everyone to bring forward their contributions in this small church. There's a picture of it. And seven days later, we went back to the same church, and I specifically looked out for this little Mexican boy and his mama making their way up to the aisle faithfully again. They prepared ahead of time. They gave regularly every week. They were unmistakably full of joy. And they gave as a family to ensure God's teachings were continued into the next generation. That, my friends, was a first-class faithful giver. The final signpost will be very challenging for most of us. A generous giver is one who gives in proportion to their earnings and wealth and in increasing fashion. Let's look at again the text in verse 11. It says this, Now finish the work according to your means, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And in the New Testament, there's a strong and clear message that our giving needs to be in proportion to what we own and earn, not a fixed 10% or whatever percent. The New Testament takes this idea of giving beyond what the Old Testament did. It's no longer about a law or a percentage, but a hard attitude as God's people steward His resources. And we, we just read in earlier in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. But listen to the next phrase that confirms this concept, in keeping with your income. I met a man in Winnipeg in a Christian businessmen's committee meeting 22 years ago at breakfast. His name is Roy Letourneau, and, and I remember his story vividly. In doing my research for today, I actually found out he passed away this last fall. I have a picture of him as well up there. This was the article they wrote about him. Roy was a famous industrialist who was widely known as God's businessman. He was an amazing pioneer for the inventions and manufacturings of massive earth-moving equipment. His business, he made dump trucks, basically. He contributed more than 90% of his income in worldly goods, including more than half of his company's outstanding stock. He was known for his life's financial application of his coined phrase, and I quote, It's not how much of my money do I give to God, but how much of God's money do I keep for myself. But how did he do it? He shared with us back then in 95 when, when he was 65, four years old, that early on he worked hard and he, he gave his, his tithe to, to the Lord. And then he moved it to 20%. And then 30 And God kept blessing him and his business. And in this case, the floodgates opened up in a very tangible fashion for him. So he said to his wife, let's go to 50 And at that point, he and his wife actually flipped the entire equation over and said, Heavenly Father, we need this amount to live on, and today we commit to giving you 100% of the rest. 
And after a few years of this plan, he was able to give away 90% of his earnings and live off only 10. Roy Letourneau had a kingdom mindset and stored up for himself eternal treasures. And, and I love this guy's testimony and example for you and me. And based on what I remember, his story doesn't end there. He went on to share that later in life he lost it all and he had to file for bankruptcy. And he wrestled with the Lord, asking, why did you take it all away? I thought we had an arrangement. He was absolutely dumbstruck, but the Lord had other things to teach him. Specifically, God blessed him in intangible ways by allowing opportunities that tested Roy's faith and grew him in different ways. And that kind of leads us to the other end of the spectrum. Some of us struggle to to even make ends meet from week to week, just like that widow did, where our paycheck date is circled in red on the calendar so we can catch up on our bills. How does God see us during those times? What does He expect of me? If we don't have enough to live on, do we get a pass on giving? (laughs) I'm not going to be giving any specific advice on this other than to seek God's Word in this area. Pray intently and consider the things that we've been learning the last two weeks and, and ask the Lord for wisdom, then listen. And commit your decision to the Lord and move forward with joy and boldness to whatever God leads you to do, because this is between you and the Lord, not anybody else. I want to share one more piece of Andy Stanley's book. And and by the way, if you can, go buy this book. Get it on Kindle or or something. It'll be worth it. He talks about the percent of giving from the different earning brackets. Sadly, the research showed that the less people earned, the higher the percentage of their earnings they gave to the Lord. In other words, the more people earn, the lower the percentage of charitable giving became. My friends, this absolutely should not be. It should be the exact opposite. If we are giving in proportion to our income and keeping enough for our needs, then the more we earn, the higher the percentage of our earnings we should be returning to the Lord. You see, for those with higher incomes, the tithe... Now listen carefully. For those with higher incomes, the tithe is just our training wheels. When we get to these higher levels of income, why does wealth seem to paralyze us and our levels of generosity? To combat that from happening, Stanley says this, generosity is the antidote to the dizzying effects of wealth. Let me read that again. Generosity is the antidote to the dizzying effects of wealth. So remember Roy's formula and journey towards that 90% of returning to the Lord in keeping with your income. You know, many of you may not know my occupation. I work as a a broker and a consultant and, and I help companies with their employee benefits plans. Benefits being health and dental and life and disability insurance. And about a year ago, I got a call out of the blue from a lady in in Vancouver. She said something like this. Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I have several millions of dollars, and I'd like to help set up a plan to provide benefits for poor families. I was initially stunned. I took this call, and, and we chatted for about a half hour, and I've had several more meetings with her since that time as well, and 
It's a dear lady who loves the Lord and has been entrusted with a, a, a large inheritance. Yet she chooses to live in a humble apartment, drive a modest car, and yet is praying faithfully about how God wants her to use these resources and how she can best honor Him. She's such a great example for us as she does not want to use these resources for anything except helping the less fortunate and advancing the gospel message of God's love to others. You see, church, we must be aware that that Satan loves to mess up our design for you and me as we increase our stewardship practices. We are designed to have a deep compassion and love for others. And one of that One of those ways is by helping them with tangible gifts and resources. Well, what's the opposite? Is it hating others and then keeping the resources for ourselves? No, it's it's actually loving self and then keeping the resources and using it on ourselves. You know, one perfect example is what John talks about in chapter 3. For God so loved the world. That's you and me. That he gave his only son to you and me. And Paul reminds us of that in verse 9 of this chapter. And you can look in your Bibles. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. My friends, love of self compels us to keep But love and compassion for others compels us to be increasing our giving. Where are you at on this, my friends? Is there room for growth? As we wrap up our two weeks together, let's review our our five signposts for our journey to generosity. Our first is to be a cheerful giver. This is an important component that influences our entire mindset and giving practices. The second is a faithful and regular giver. And, and once you start, continue fully to the time of completion. And the third is a sacrificial giver, the one who chooses to go without for the benefit of another and is totally okay with that. The fourth is a first fruit giver and does not wait to see what's left over, but prioritizes his commitments. And finally, number five is a giver who gives in proportion to his earnings and wealth in increasing fashion. All leading us to become joyful, God-honoring, generous givers. You know, some of us might be great in a few of these areas. But can we be honest with ourselves? Can we admit that there are a few of these other signposts that, that God's speaking to us today? Nudging us to become a giver just like Jesus if he were here today. In closing, may I give a charge for the generations. Seniors, if I know anything about your generation, you give very faithfully and regularly. However, is it still a joy for you or has it become a non-emotional ritual? I've heard in the past firsthand, why do the kids always target us seniors for the missions trips? We're on a fixed income. Seek the joy in giving, my friends. You are often faithful and and obedient by duty, but 
ensure that your first love reflects the right reason for the action of giving. And I'm sure you've had many great stories of how God's blessed your faithfulness over the years and share those great stories with the younger generations. Middle-aged folks, my challenge for you is that I believe we've fallen prey to allowing this consumer kryptonite to cripple the decision-making process and priorities of our families. I also fear that, that you may have fallen short in teaching your sons and daughters the truths about money and faith in God. We need to move back to our ultimate dependence on God rather than depending on our incomes and taking God's bountiful blessings for granted. For you, let's not only return regularly to the Lord His portion, but move into sacrificial giving. Celebrate the going without. Young families, you're living in a very challenging time, trying to pay off school debt, mortgages, raising young kids, and and your income is just starting to come around. And there's tons of financial pressures, but don't get caught up in getting convinced that you don't have enough. Because compared to 90 to 96% of the world, you are extremely wealthy, and we are not excused from the first fruits formula. Be content, regardless of where God has placed you. God owns it all, and He knows your situation intimately. Young adults and students, I have to say good on you for wanting to contribute to various needy causes at home and abroad. The Gen Ys and Gen Zs love to help the less fortunate. That's great. However, I don't think we've taught you well when you were 3 and 10 and 15 and 20 years of age that we're designed to return the tithe each and every Sunday after payday. This is a very important spiritual discipline and meaningful act of worship. Pick up this practice and carry it. It doesn't matter if you make five bucks or a million dollars a year on your paper route. Okay, that's a very large paper route, but... Instituting this practice of of financial obedience joyfully will set your financial compass on the right course the rest of your life. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate once again our worship and offerings, just like last week. So perhaps you may want to get ready for that. Thank you, church, for going on this two-week road trip with me. And hopefully you've seen some new places on, on our journey and have made some some lifelong decisions during this time. And friends, it's my prayer that God richly blesses you and your families and your businesses and your giving and growing in this area. Are you ready for our second week of cheerful celebration? You guys did great last week. And if you weren't here, what we're doing for the next three months is that when we announce our tithes and offerings Time for the ushers to come forward. We all stand up in unity and praise the Lord, cheer loudly and worship with our hearts and gratitude for the Lord for giving us his blessings. Are you ready, church? Here we go. Ushers, will you please come forward for today's tithes and offerings? Amen. I'm so proud to be part of this church body. Keep standing if you would, please. And ushers, before you start, 
you know, I've always admired your faithfulness. But I'm going to challenge you to do two things as all of your church body is standing supporting you in your service. Every time you serve, and I know many of you ushers are off duty today, but I'm including you here as well. First, take up your prayers for your brothers and sisters around you. And pray for God's blessing on them. As you collect their offerings that they've given sacrificially, that they're given back to the Lord. And ask God that he would open up his floodgates of heaven's blessings for them and continue to provide for their needs. Second, pray and ask God to multiply what you are collecting for kingdom use. Just like Jesus did when he collected those two fish and five loaves. And fed thousands and collected 12 baskets left over after all were fed. Know that your role is important. And do take it seriously. Thank you. You guys can go ahead and serve.